From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 1- 205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Charles Beery, our celebrity producer today. Matt Gubensky screening your phone calls and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Colin, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. So, um, Sunday's Mother's Day. Sunday's Mother's Day. And very May, important day. May is Mother's Month. May is Mother's Month. The Mother's Month. That's one right. of them. Right? May, October. Well, uh, one of the two. Yeah. yeah our Mother's Months. And... Um, we all have our natural mothers to whom we are abundantly grateful for uh, life to begin with mm-hmm. and the nurturing and quality of life that was afforded us after the fact. Uh, but we as Catholics are just triply, quadruply, quintuply blessed um, to have the realization of um, the graces that are provided to us by our spiritual mother. Our spiritual mother in two senses. First of all, there is Our Lady, uh, the Mother of God, Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, who is the queen of the universe and queen of any category of person that you can think of, angels, man, whomever. Uh, And so she she is our mother. She is mother in the order of grace as our natural mothers are in the order of nature. Um, because she is mother of he who is the head of the mystical body, the church, and therefore is deeply concerned about every uh, every everyone in the mystical body of, ch- of the church. We can also sort of analogically speak then also of the church as our mother too, but we don't often think of that. So maybe in this month of May when we think of Our Lady, we think also of the role of our mother, the church, uh, as the one who in Christ's name, dispenses the graces and the fruits of the redemption to us. But I think there are great connections here, and I'm only recently discovering some of these myself. And you fancy yourself an amateur Mariologist. Well, let's not delve into that too deeply. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, uh, get, I'll get Tony Thomas on the phone while you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. He can attest to some knowledge in that area, I think. But uh, anyway, here, here's an interesting thing. This weekend, we have coinciding 
a feast day of our Heavenly Mother, whose motherly intervention in human history occurred in 1917 in Fatima, Portugal. Well, uh, one of the times in which it has occurred. That's yes. true. Yeah. But in this case, because uh, this afternoon uh, I will be uh, hosting uh, with the rosary from Fatima, beginning at, uh, I don't know what the, 5.30 Eastern Time, I believe it is, on EWTN Television. And then during the wee hours of the morning, uh, to replay in the afternoon tomorrow, uh, the Mass from Fatima, celebrating uh, the anniversary of the apparitions. But here is an interesting connection. There is a beautiful image called Our Lady of China, also known as Our Lady of Deng Lu. And this is an image connected with an apparition of Mary in the village of Dunglu in the year 1900. The date is a little wishy-washy. It might be it might be in May for reasons I will give. And so in this appearance, this was in the midst of the Boxer Rebellion, which was a peasants' revolt, which the government then joined on their side against foreigners coming into the who have come into the country. The influence, of course, the British they had their zone, the French, everybody had their interest zones in China in those days. But also against the missionaries who had come in and brought in Christianity, a foreigner's religion. And so during the midst of this rebellion at this little town of Dunglu, which is not too far from Beijing, it was a very poor town. In fact, the it's the place of the beggars is what it means. And of the people who lived there, about a thousand or so, 700 of them were Christians, were Catholics. And they had been uh, Christian baptized by the Vincentian missionaries to China. The pastor of their local church, Father Wu, was a, was a native pastor, a Chinese uh, priest, uh, educated, uh, of course, as a, a priest, ordained as a priest. And so they were attacked and surrounded by these rebels who were... Uh, preparing to invade the city, and unbeknownst to the population, Father was off somewhere. He was maybe in the church, pleading, pleading with Our Lady. He saw what would happen because it had happened in other other places in China when they came in and they slaughtered Christians and they killed uh, killed foreigners and so on. And so he was pleading, 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 and an apparition of Our Lady appeared over the over the mission church, the parish church there. And the, the soldiers and the rebels and others with their guns and arrows and whatever weapons they had started shooting at it, of course, to, to no effect, as you would imagine. And uh, no doubt we're getting discouraged at this point when a uh, mysterious horseman rode at them, uh, charged them, and then they dissipated and went away. So when it was all done, the, the, they took this to be Our Lady and perhaps St. Michael, the horseman, and that they had saved this little town of Donglu. And Father got, he wanted an image to, to represent this, and he got a, um, a, a painter. He, he didn't know how to represent a painter. He got a painter, and there was an image that somebody possessed of the, of, of the dowager empress uh, sitting on a, basically a throne in very Chinese imperial clothing and style and so on. And he had the painter use that as a model. And so you have an image of Mary with Chinese visage and Jesus with Chinese visage sitting on an imperial throne in imperial garments. And so 
This immediately became a place of pilgrimage, and in 1924, the bishops of China at a synod held in Shanghai declared her Our Lady of China, and the apostolic delegate to, uh, to China uh, who, who would have been present, often at synods, there will be a, a legate from the Holy See uh, representing them, and the delegate consecrated China, Mongolia, Tibet, and um, I forget what the other territory was, to Our Lady of China back in 1924. Now, we know, of course, the Chinese Revolution came along in 1949, and the church you know, began to be persecuted. It wasn't until 1996 that the Chinese government forbade uh, pilgrimages to the, church, to the shrine of Our Lady of China, and they sent in troops and destroyed the shrine, and they thought they destroyed the image, but it is safely hidden away, and of course nobody is saying where it is, uh, preserved for some happy day in the future. Now the interesting thing, I think, is that the Soviet Union lasted about 70 years. It's been uh, 70 years about since the Communist Revolution in China. So I think maybe on this anniversary of Our Lady of Fatima, we remember the the situation of Christians and Catholics in particular inside communist China. And we ask Our Lady of China to do what she did at Fatima in terms of the ending the uh, effects and the errors of communism in the Soviet Union in Russia. And I think we can look to her on that premise uh, to do the same in, in China. In God, good time, but we should be confident that it will occur, just as that priest was confident that Our Lady would come to the rescue of their little village of Donglu. Yeah, and there, and I'm sure there are books that do better jobs than others and include more than others, but it, it's really staggering. If you take the time to, to look at this and to research it, the number of times that Our Lady has almost unmistakably intervened in the affairs of nations is staggering. It is, because she has the feminine response. Men might say, well, suck it up. (laughs) Get on down the road. Do what you're supposed to be doing. But Our Lady comes. She's concerned about the misery and the suffering of her people. So this Mother's Day, we have two women to celebrate in our lives. And, of course, we can celebrate our grandmothers, too. But we have especially those two women, and by analogy, uh, the church as well, for her role in our life. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, Mother Angelica believed very firmly in surrounding yourself with holy reminders 
uh, of the love that our Lord has for us. And speaking of Our Lady of Fatima at EWTN's religious catalog, we have a beautiful statue of Our Lady of Fatima, which is just the one of the most spectacular images known to Holy Mother Church with her blue attire and, and everything. This beautiful statue is imported from Fatima, Portugal, and it stands on a cloud with three doves at her feet. Her pale green garments are studded with jeweled details, and her golden crown is removable, making it ideal for May crownings. Mary's gentle face has glass eyes, which gave softly downward. Uh, the 22-inch statue stands on a 2-inch base and is made of resin. It's available now at, EWTN's RC, uh, at EWTNRC.com where they're offering free standard shipping for online orders of $75 or more. Standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Robert is first up today in Olympia, Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Robert, thanks so much for holding. You're on with Colin Donovan. Thank you. Uh, I, if you have my question, it concerns the, the, the love we are to have for others, mm-hmm. and that uh, Jesus' commandment, 1512, he, he declares it's his commandment, and then uh, I hear a lot about you know, 1918 of Leviticus, mm-hmm. and that the great part of the greatest commandment in the Mosaic Law was love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm wondering about, for Catholics, which is the superior commandment? It isn't that one is superior or the other, but in simple answer to your question is what Jesus said. It's that God conditioned his obligations he placed on mankind to their state and the graces that would he avail- be available to in the covenant in which they were, the covenant of Israel in one case, and in the new covenant. In sending, and so the co- to love your neighbor as yourself is obviously a simple human natural law gesture. Uh, the natural law simply means if you want life, don't take it from others. If you don't want people stealing your goods, don't, don't steal theirs, and so on. You go down the things which uh, represent, at least by external action. And so love as the carrying out of that desire of the good for others means not to take it from them or to have it taken from you. So that's the standard there. What is the standard which Christ then gives? It's the total outpouring without cost, as he did on the cross. This is what he called his apostles to do. It's what he calls every Christian to do. It doesn't mean that all will achieve that or that achieving that is necessarily, you know, if you don't, if you're not a great saint, you won't, you know, be in the kingdom at all. Because if you have the grace of justice, you are, you know, in the kingdom. As he said, the kingdom is present among you and is present in us through grace. But there's a reason that the church canonizes people is because they have heroic expressions of the virtue, and that is the virtue acted out and lived without, without any cost, as Christ did. So under the, under the new covenant, where we have the graces of the redemption available to us, we have potentially, 
if we remove the obstacles in our own hearts, the possibility of loving others as Christ has loved us. So that's the goal. Some will achieve it, some will not, and still get into the kingdom, but that's the goal. He is the model. Within the Godhead, we see that the persons of the Trinity are pouring out. The Father pours himself out in the Word, and the Father and the Son pour themselves out in the Holy Spirit. It's this total gift of self. And that's what Jesus did in becoming man and what he did in a particular way that obviously resonates with us because it saved us on the cross. So that's our model, and we strive to achieve it. And, of course, we do that with, great, with many failings. But the graces are there because they're the, very, they're the graces of Christ which are infinite and absolute, and we must try to correspond with them even though uh, we will certainly fail. Uh, but that's what we are called to do as Christians. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. Tom is in Omaha, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Tom, you're on with Colin Donovan. Thank you. I've got two simple, or two, two, two little questions. The first one is, uh, a lot of times I hear from even clergy and others, Catholics all over, and they say, God bless. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that mean, and is that appropriate? I mean, it sounds kind of pedestrian and just rattling <laughs> to me. But yeah. God bless. Well, God bless what? With me? You? What do you mean, God bless? What do you think about that? Well, I, th- I think you look at what they're intending. They're speaking to people. They're talking to those people <laughs> or that individual, and they're, they're, it's a shorthand for God bless you. Yeah, it may be a little pedestrian, but I think that's the intention is you would wish God's blessings on the individual. You know, in a way, we were, it sort of fits with what we were just talking because we were talking about wishing on others what you yourself have and would not want taken away from you, and that constitute treating the neighbor as yourself. But here we have the standard that we would want God to bless each person, as it were, to the infinite. Uh, and so it is a little prayer for that, as it's conceived in many uh uh, in many forms, in different cultures, uh, different languages are used. That happens to be, uh, in, in English, what we say. So, yeah, I think we understand what it is, and all language is something that grows and changes. Uh, so I don't think there's any disrespect intended for that, nor should one, some be taken. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Victoria writes in, My son is allergic to many things, including the Eucharist. Should I get my son baptized, even if he won't be able to receive the Eucharist? Uh, you can, um, and that is, uh, of course, it depends on the age and in the rite in which you are. In the Eastern rites, they receive the Eucharist uh, as infants at their baptism so that all three sacraments are conferred. Uh, the sacraments of initiation at the same time. In the Latin Church, there is a looking for the age of reason, but there's certainly no hard and fast necessity of holding to that. I think today in our world with many autistic children and others with neurological development issues, priests are far more willing to grant them, uh, give them the Eucharist. I think it has to be done with care that the child will uh, treat it with respect, that he understands there is some difference here. 
Um, there is potentially could be given either as a host or as a drop of the precious blood, as is sometimes done for the sick who can't swallow solid food. So I think there is uh, that definitely that possibility of, of being able uh, to do that. I have just a quick follow-up to the previous caller. I yep. missed uh, an element of his question was, where can he find the image of Our Lady of China? You can find it online, and there are many modern versions, but when you see one that looks like a Chinese emperor sitting on the throne, that that is the one that I'm referring to that is the one presently hidden away, awaiting better days in the, um, in the so-called People's Republic. Uh, Daniel would like to know, if a married couple with three children plan to send them to Catholic school, why is it against church teaching to prevent future pregnancies? Our family is complete, and we won't be able to pay for Catholic school if we have more than three. Uh, There is no—I don't think I've ever read that number in any book of theology or canon law. What Pope uh, Paul VI, St. Pope Paul VI, said in Humanae Vitae is he talked about responsible parenthood being that prayerful decision before God what one can provide for the children, for the number of children. And there can be many reasons why one would not want to be, uh, you know, have a pregnancy at this time. The illness of the mother, for example, is a very common one. Uh, Women who are told that it might endanger their lives. Some women say, I'm going to have a child anyway, and they do successfully. But most people will follow the advice of their doctors and not have them. And they will use natural family planning in order to, to space their children. And that spacing could theoretically have, be not to have any more children be, beyond what they th- believe they can economically provide for. And I think the church looks at that. If you if you are very generous in having your children, that's a good thing. But it doesn't mean that a couple cannot prayerfully before God in their circumstances choose that, no, using natural family planning at this time in our marriage uh, is is what is going to be the, the the proper thing for us. And they should pray about that and not just, you know, decide to do it for reasons of convenience or, or other things. So I think health reasons are very often uh, often the occasion of that. So the difference then between that and what is normally called family planning in our country is family planning generally means using devices or pills in order to stop the woman's body from doing what nature would otherwise do. That is what the church calls a grave sin. You may work with the body which God gave you, and around the rhythm of that body, you can have your relationships so that you do not conceive, or at least you would have the likelihood of not conceiving, depending on on the, the time of the cycle. That's what natural family does, and there's a couple methods out there, the couple-to-couple league the promotes this. You can look them up online, for example. Uh, there's uh, there's other ones as well. But the basic idea is a similar. The way of gauging it in the course of a month is slightly different from method to method, but they're all having the same purpose, that you use the rhythm God placed in women when you have a justification. Now, Paul VI said a just reason. People have asked me, does that mean a serious reason? Well, sexual relations are a serious matter, 
<laughs> having children is a serious matter. Therefore, just equal to the matter is serious. You know, you know whether some trivial thing, venial matter, a just reason is slight, like the matter itself. So just or serious in this case are equivalent terms because they're referring to the, deg the degree of gravity of the matter of the case, which in this case is the obligations of married couples. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Sarah in Idaho, Ashley in Nebraska, and we've got plenty of time for your calls as well. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Still a couple of open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Sarah, a first-time caller in Idaho, watching us on YouTube today. Sarah, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Hi, Sarah. Are you there? Let's try Ashley in Omaha, Nebraska. She is listening today on Spirit Catholic Radio. Ashley, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so my question is, um, is it okay for a Catholic organization, um, the specific one is a, uh, like a Catholic co-op mm -hmm. for, home, for homeschool? to mm -hmm. um, utilize Protestant space and to pay rent to um, to a Protestant church in order to utilize, utilize that space? No, th I wouldn't say that there's any per se reason you can't. They're a renter and you're the rentee and you, you, know, you form the judgment this is the best deal or the one we can afford. I don't think the fact that they're a Protestant necessarily would. Uh, I think you could get to a point where with, you know, if they were maybe a very anti-Catholic Protestant, that would be scandalous to people. Some might be scandalized by yeah, the very fact I wouldn't of rent a, the Scottish Rite Temple or anything. No, pro <laughs> probably not, although probably most of that's dissipated, too, for that matter. Uh, so I think you have to gauge that. Uh, I'm surprised you can't find a Catholic institution that can give you room for that, but... You know, we do co-ops here in Birmingham, too, and, you know, not all churches, parishes have the facilities. We happen to have them at St. Paul's to be able to do that, for example. But, you know, so I think that in and of itself, but if you, if you think or if you find in talking to people they might be scandalized by it, that would be a reason not to, not to do it. But in and of itself, no. They're the renter and you're the rentee. Does that give you some peace of mind, Ashley? It does. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Okay. Thanks so much. Let's go back to Idaho. I think Sarah has returned for us, uh, watching us on YouTube. Sarah, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Go ahead. What's your question today? My question's on Psalms 8-2. I'm sorry, Psalms 8-2, 6-8. It says, I said, you are God, you're all sons of the Most High. And is that Jesus talking? And can I have some back information <laughs> on that? For to me, it's weird. I don't understand. Well, part of it is we, we don't have it in the Hebrew. Um, 
in a way, we are all sons of God, aren't we? And we say that we are the children of God today, and the Israelites were part of the... But it's hard to know, because sometimes in Scripture, this the expression seems to apply to the angels, meaning the good angels, and at other times to, uh, to human beings, the, the faithful, if you will. So in all such cases, context is, uh, is the same, and sometimes it is important, and it's, it's very important to know that background to be able to understand it fully. I don't have a, a text with me or the, the facility to do that now, but I, you know, I do know that the word often there is Elohim, which is derived from El, the, you know, we have the same thing in, in Islam, Allah, uh, all, but it's El in, in Hebrew, and then so gods there can have a variety of meanings. Remembering, too, they're surrounded by pagan cultures, and there could be, uh, there could be a certain implied context in that. You know, if you're trying to, uh, for instance, the follow-on phrase, you will die like mere mortals, you will fall like every other ruler. Well, we live in a generation of people who today, many of whom think that they are, they are as much God as God is, and uh, perhaps this verses need to be read to them. So there could be multiple levels of meaning there intended by the author, but um, you know that I, I think I think you can read perhaps all of those things into it. Does that help at all? Yes, thank you. Thanks, Sarah. We appreciate the phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Marino is in Hershey, Pennsylvania, listening on Holy Family Radio. Marino, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Mr. Donovan. Hi. Uh, I've always wondered, uh, a, a little bit ago you were talking about China. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing, uh, I'd say about one or two years ago, either hearing or reading somewhere, that as numbers go, not percentages, but as numbers go, there are the most Christians of any nation are in China. Mm-hmm. Is, is that a possibility or truth? Or I kind of doubt it. I haven't looked at the gross numbers. Remember, China has, I think right now, their latest number is like 1.4 billion people. A small part of that, I would be surprised if even 10% is Christian, let's say it's 10%, that would be, what, 140 million. Well, uh, theoretically, in the United States, if you aggregate Protestants and Catholics, at least in the past, may not be true anymore, you would have had probably 70 or 80 percent uh, Christian. So the number right there would be greater than yeah, what's Just in a China. brief cursory search yeah. uh, shows that the United States has the largest Christian population in the world followed by Brazil, Mexico, Russia, and the Philippines. Right, and Brazil would be specifically Catholic because it's known as the largest uh, uh, national Catholic uh, body in the, in the world. So, uh, God, God willing, maybe someday that will be true. So let's ask him, let's ask Our Lady of China, you know, to turn those statistics around and, and uh, dump the devil on his head and make it happen. <laughs> Uh, Tom is in Lincoln, Nebraska today, listening to Spirit Catholic Radio. Tom, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, thank you, thank you. Um, so my question is regarding a same-sex attracted couple, um, uh, two women that are devout, very warm, friendly people, um, 
but it's lately been made known that they are um, li- living like in a, a like a relationship. It's not just it's not just that that they we might speculate that they're good friends. They live together, but they also uh, there was a newspaper article that kind of gave that information out, so to speak. Um, and so they are uh, in a role of reading at church. They're lectors, and I wondered if that is something that is okay or if that's not mm-hmm. really uh okay to have that kind of profile in a in a church sure well you have to separate what is gossip or what is alleged from what may or may not be true as a matter the obligation of those who serve in pastoral roles including readers and others in parishes, certainly. We know that the clergy are obliged to lives of chastity because of celibacy and religious as well because of their vows. We know that single people are by the moral law, etc., etc., etc. So in that respect, all of the, all kinds of misbehavior would disqualify from a pastoral role if it was done with foreknowledge and with uh, you know, disregard for the moral law and disregard for the the church's norms on these matter. You know, so assuming a true situation of two people, regardless of whether it's heterosexual or homosexual or whatever it is, that it would be disqualifying by what the church has said it ought to be the character of those who fulfill those kinds of public roles. So that's separating what ought to be from what the facts of the case are, which probably neither you nor I know with certainty. But that would normally be the case. Thanks so much, Tom. We appreciate the call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Sam in Iowa called in and wants to know if Catholics are supposed to be buried in a Catholic cemetery. You know, it's sort of one of those nice-to-haves, but not every every you know town and burg in the world has a Catholic cemetery in it. Uh, that is why in the church's uh, burial rite, the priest blesses the plot of land in which the Catholic is buried. So you either get your own little Catholic cemetery that's, you know, six, seven feet long by a number wide and deep, uh, or you belong in a cemetery that's been consecrated by the bishop of the place and is set up as a Catholic cemetery. Of course, it used to be that every parish church had next to it uh, uh, the little Catholic cemetery, and you see that in Europe. You see it in the, the farmlands of, of the United States and Canada where the parish church has its little cemetery, as did the Lutherans, as did you know the Congregationalists and whomever. Uh, but with growth of population in that, that's seldom the case anymore. And in the big cities, there are generally uh, large cemeteries in which there may be a Catholic section that's been consecrated, or it's done at the time of the burial when the priest blesses uh, uh, blesses that plot. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Paula writes in, when the commandment says to honor thy father and thy mother, does that mean only the earthly parents or our Lord as well? And also, why do you Catholics use the term father when in Scripture it says, call no one father? <laughs> okay. Um, well, the shorter answer on there is the way the church explains that commandment is that 
It intends immediately and directly our natural father and mother because they are the origins of, of, of our nature. God, of course, is the ultimate origin, but they are his instruments in giving us life. He gives us the soul. They give us our bodies. They have the responsibilities to raise us and care for us and so on. So we owe that to them. It's a debt. It's a debt of justice to them. Now, in analyzing this over the last 2,000 years, the fathers and doctors, the magisterium, and people like Thomas Aquinas, obviously, and others, the conclusion is that to anyone who has that relationship to us, we have a debt. So, clearly, I mean, we honor our grandparents and our ancestors in the same way. If you look at naturally what is done in many primitive societies, there's great honor to the ancestry. And when the church goes into those countries, as it did in China and Africa and other places, they try to convert that into to satisfy the justice due to those who gave us natural life, but also to do it within the understanding that we only give true veneration and so on to God and, and, and uh, worship to God and veneration to Our Lady and the saints. So that has to get diverted. But that leads us then to further conclusions that, yes, the priests who give us baptism, the bishop who gives us confirmation, uh, all of those who stand in a relationship of a spiritual father to us uh, are ones to which we have a debt of justice, which we means also gratitude. We should be grateful to our fathers and our mothers, natural and, and supernatural. And so the church is not an institution of nature with tribes and patriarchs as was Israel. It's an institution of grace. And so our fatherhood is spiritual. It's the pope and the bishops and the priest with whom we, from whom we receive the sacraments. And in this, we're only imitating St. Paul, who said you have 10,000 teachers, but you have one father because I am the one who baptized you. This is where the church gets the idea of the fatherhood of the clergy. But it springs from the natural idea of a paternal relationship, whether in the natural order, our natural mothers and fathers are, celebrate our mothers on Sunday, or in the supernatural order, the clergy who, who, um, who give us the sacraments. It's also where the church has great respects, for example, for the pope, the primacy of the pope and the authority of the pope. It comes from this commandment as well, that we owe that debt of justice to him because he stands in that office in relation, spiritual relationship to us, as did the patriarchs of old to the tribes of Israel. And so that's, that's the basis of that. Nature perfected by grace, as our Lord said, I came not to destroy the law. In other words, I didn't come to destroy the order of justice and of these relationships. I came to perfect them and to sanctify them and spiritualize them. And that's exactly what the church has done for 2,000 years. We head now to your home and native land. Molly is a first-time <laughs> caller in the province of Ontario watching us on YouTube. Molly, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Mr. Donovan. Thank you for taking my question. Sure. Um, it's a little bit of a random one. I was just wondering, um, can excommunicated people go to Mass, or are they, like, shunned? The Church doesn't call for shunning, um, and I think I'm correct on this, but the possibility is I'm not. They remain, have the obligation, because it's to God, of rendering to God worship on Sundays. That's a divine commandment. The church 
can't break that. So they're in the odd situation of them not being able to receive the sacraments, but not having to fulfill the Sunday obligation. So I believe that's a correct understanding of that. Uh, anyway, it makes logical sense to me at the moment. So I'm, I'm giving you with all the all the uh, potential subtleties and error that might be involved in that statement. Statement, but I believe that to be the case. They they not only should can go to mass, but they should because they have that obligation. Now, what excommunicant actually satisfies that? Um, probably few to none. Thanks, Molly. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. As we've mentioned earlier, Mother's Day is coming up this Sunday. We want to wish a big, happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there from all of us here at EWTN Radio. Heath is a first-time caller in the great state of Idaho listening on Salt and Light Radio. Heath, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hi, good afternoon, guys. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I was calling in regarding the question that a gentleman had just previously called Mm -hmm. in regarding um, the two women, and I've been reading the scriptures, and I think specifically my question was, um, if there's one faith, one God and one mediator between man, how there can be different beliefs between the different churches when my reading of the Bible and my understanding of it, it's pretty harmonious. And then I was referencing mm-hmm. Corinthians 6, 9. I'm, are you familiar with it? You can re- remind me if you care to. It's, it's Paul's letter. He says, do you not know that unrighteous people will not inherit God's kingdom. Do not be misled. Those who are sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who submit to homosexual acts, and who practice homosexuality, mm-hmm. these great, and it goes on, will not inherit God's kingdom. But it does say, but this is what some of you were, and they changed, and thus the changing, they were able to have their sins washed by repentance and changing their life in order to be washed clean in the blood of the lamb. So I, that was my, my okay. question, I guess. Uh, I didn't if, you're really, breathing, if you're breathing, there's hope. Yeah, I, I didn't quite get a question in there. But, you know, here's the thing. That's speaking of one category of sin, of one serious sin, in fact, one which has been called among the sins calling out to heaven. The point of there is a general one, and that is none of the unrighteous, for whatever reason, will enter into the kingdom of God. But we have until the last day of our life to repent and come back to God who is merciful uh, and is prepared to receive us. So, yes, the categories are important. Theologians use them. You, do, you can speak of categories of seriousness and sin. Uh, the general category I mentioned, sins crying out to God for heaven, defrauding the poor, the sin of Sodom, and, and these kinds of things. But that doesn't stay, change the general case that repentance changes all of that, and God wants repentance and, and seeks it. So I'm not really quite sure, ultimately, what your point was there, because... Well, I, I think he's saying that you go around to various churches that are yeah. all supposed to be Christian churches, oh, and, I, I and see in spite of what the Scriptures say, right. some will condone that behavior to one yeah. degree or another. Well, this is why it's such a great relief to be a Catholic, because the Bible doesn't come with a uh, footnote interpretation of the passages. The number of denominations among Christians uh, illustrate the fact that 
you put two people in a room. Uh, I, I, a friend of mine I used to say that, uh, you know, you, you, you have three Jews in a room, you get five opinions. He's a rabbi. Uh, it's pretty much the same with Catholics. You might get eight opinions, but I don't know. Uh, pretty fluid. But the point is the same, that without an authority to officially interpret it, and this is what distinguished theology from teaching, Christ spoke with authority, unlike our Pharisees. Christ spoke with authority. All authority was given him by the Father. To the apostles, he gave all of his authority. The apostles are the bishops of the Catholic Church today. They teach with authority in their unanimity and in every time and place. So people who are not submitting themselves to that authority, which Christ clearly established, there's hardly anything clear in the New Testament. Because if that authority is not there, every passage of Scripture is subject to a lexicological analysis where you look at the word, what are the meanings in Greek that were used, what was the context in the ancient world of that day, how would it have been intended. Everything becomes that. And nobody teaches with authority, and every man becomes his own authority. Every stable boy, as Luther says. Uh, and that's why we have so many disagreements among the denominations. And even in the Catholic Church, you get people who take that approach to the understanding of, of church teaching. Um, and you can make all the distinctions which theologian make, makes of, you know, what's settled teaching, what is, you know, in development, and so on. And you, we d theologians do that as a matter of course. But in the end, when something is definitively taught by the church, you know it's taught by Christ because he gave that authority to the church in teaching the church as a whole teaches authoritatively, and the Pope teaching using the maximum his uh, ultimate authority to teach authoritatively does that as well. So that's what distinguishes each man with his Bible and his Greek lexicon and his, you know, his own reasonable opinion about the meaning of it from the way the church understands it. And so that's why those differences are there. And even in the church, as I said, you, there's a lot of disagreement based on personal human opinions rather than taking what the church has said and, and living it and applying it. Next stop is Southern California. Mary is listening on John Paul II Radio. Mary, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello, Colin. Um, you mentioned several weeks mm -hmm. back um, something in regards to animal sacrifices were mm -hmm. not always recommended or, or um, part of the rule. Could you um, elaborate on that a little bit, like when it started, why it started, and, you know, for reparation? And then can mm -hmm. you recommend historical scholarly texts that can give more information? Well, I may be able to do all but the latter, at least off the top of my head. Um, going back to a comment I made to an earlier caller, and that is God meets us where we're at. And he draws, he drew the Israelites out of the world in which they were in and pointed them to that which would come. And the Old Covenant was the means of pointing to that which would come. And so what was the rule among the pagans was ultimately adopted, and certainly with some sadness even, uh, or not that God can be sad, that's a metaphysical impossibility, 
But when God gave them kings, for example, because they begged him and he warned them, this is what's going to happen. And sure enough, it happened just, but he gave them to him. And so things that were adopted as ways of worshiping him that were the common experience of the people of the Middle East and really across the, the world uh, in those days. Because it was understood that to sacrifice something is to say, I give this up for the sake of him to whom I sacrifice it. And so there was that natural understanding in the idea of a, a sacrifice, of oblating. So it could be a holocaust. I take this thing which is perfectly useful, it's got good meat on it, and I burn it up. I give it to God. Now, there's no elevator you can send it up, no dumbwaiter you can send it up to God. You burn it up, and this is your way of saying this is the, this is the esteem and the honor that I rendered to the Almighty is by offering these things to him, and I destroy them so that they can have no profane use but just are intended for him, although he has no use, as he would say through some of the prophets. What do bullocks and, and lambs and these things mean to me? Nothing but a clean heart. This is what he wants of us. And so the new covenant has a different kind of sacrifice. We talked about it a little bit in another answer, this idea of total self-gift, of donation. That's the sacrifice God wants of us, a clean heart that is firmly pointing to him and loving him and loving our neighbor as ourselves, of course, but even in a sacrificial way. That's the sacrifice he wanted, circumcision of the heart, as our Lord would say. And so everything was a preparation, and he prepares and he prepares and he prepared, and then, as we're told, in the fullness of time, Christ came, and the new order, the new covenant was established, and he calls all men to that. So it was temporal, both in back being in human history, but it also was temporal in the sense that it was for a time until the Messiah came. And so the curtain was split and the sacrifices ended when the Romans invaded in 70 AD. Uh, and they won't be celebrated there again, at least with any meaning to God. Julie in Topeka, Kansas, our apologies, but we are flat out of time. We do hope that you'll call us back, however. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Charles Beery, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. I hope you have a terrific, terrific weekend. Be kind to your mothers and celebrate motherhood wherever you find it. Until we get together on Monday, God bless.